From Animal Media, this is Tech on Politics, the podcast that lives at the intersection of technology and politics. I'm your host, Tom Saris. One of the things I know best is the cause space. 2008 to 2010 was the wild west of crowdfunding and cause platforms. When I moved out to Silicon Valley to raise money for my first startup, Rally.org, there were a number of players trying to create technology solutions for the things people care about most, their causes. Crowdfunding was just getting going with sites like Kickstarter and Indiegogo competing. It felt like this was a space that would democratize the funding and influence of everyday people for the things that they care about. At this time, Matt Mahan, my guest on today's show, was working on Facebook's tool for transitioning people's use of social media into collective action. The name of that tool was Causes. For a brief period of time there, you might even have called Matt and I frenemies. Matt Mahan is someone I have tremendous respect for because I know firsthand how hard the battle scars that are created when you're working, living, and pushing in the cause space. I feel very fortunate to have been involved in such moments of movement and to call Matt a friend, colleague, and comrade. Causes, Votizen, and other tools people built to try to influence the cause and political process eventually merged into a broader effort called Brigade, an organization backed by Sean Parker, Mark Bennyhoff, and Ron Conway. And that's what I want to talk about today, uh, a subject Matt and I know too well the new cause economy and how we transition social media into real action. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's great to be here. Matt, we've been at this for a long time, and look where we are now. Too long, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe a little bit. <laughs> Trump is claiming social media victory alongside the title of President of the United States of America. Hundreds of millions of people were generating billions and billions of messages during the last election. Bots are rumored to have had significant influence on our Facebook feeds, our Twitter feeds, and uh, the world feels like it's on the verge of being out of control. You are building the world's first network for voters. Talk to me about what you've recently experienced and discovered. I am super hungry to chat with you. Yeah, absolutely. Would love to jump into it. One thing I should say is just framing before we jump into the data we saw is that as much as I want to emphasize social media as the most important story coming out of this election, and it's definitely an important one, I think we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that ultimately the candidate and his or her message and who the candidate chooses to speak to, I think has the overriding impact. And I think, I think no matter what media forms we use, there's never going to be a replacement for the candidate as the central question of a presidential election. That being said, we saw fascinating things in our data that, in retrospect, I think would have indicated how much risk Hillary Clinton faced in the Midwest and, the, and what we might call the Rust Belt. Specifically, what we found the morning after the election as we dug through our data was an abnormally high percentage of registered Democrats crossing over to pledge their vote for Donald Trump on Brigade, which shocked all wow. of us. And I should, you know, just, just to back up. So what Brigade does is it's a, it's a network for voters. We help people claim their unique voter record, which is in the voter file. We give them tools to express their opinions. 
connect with other like-minded voters, and then take action together. And one way that they take action is by filling out their ballots and collectively voting for the candidates who they feel best represent their values. In the first half of the year, we skewed pretty heavily left, and we had a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters, a lot of enthusiasm from millennials who were in mostly in cities and pretty left of center. As we got down to the last few months of the general election, we saw the user base skew in an entirely different direction. Older, whiter, more conservative. And that led me to be a little complacent about our data, to be perfectly honest. I saw this trend of registered Democrats pledging for Donald Trump, and I sort of just assumed, well, we're just tapping into that small subset of conservative Democrats who cross over to vote for Republicans. And while that's some of what was going on when we realized what we were sitting on the night of the election, and we normalized the data, and we looked at the places where registered Dems were crossing over at significantly higher rates, what we found was that that was concentrated in the Midwest and the Rust Belt states, and in states like Pennsylvania and North Carolina, where Trump dramatically outperformed the polls. And it wasn't happening at nearly the same rate. In fact, it was happening at a lower than baseline rate in places like Nevada and Colorado, where Hillary Clinton held on by the narrow margin that was predicted by the polls. What do you think happened with the polls? I mean, a nail I knew it was going to be a nail-biter, definitely yeah. going into this. That's right. Well, we saw really high variance in the months leading up to the election, where Hillary would be up 12 points, and then it would be dead even. And there's something about that that just doesn't lead to a lot of confidence that we actually know what's going on. And so the question is, where does all this uncertainty come from? Is it that we traditionally you might say, well, our polling methods is just, we're just missing people. Interestingly, though, the folks who we missed weren't highly mobile urban millennials who you can only reach through a cell phone, which is where I think if we had missed, if the polls had missed dramatically in the last couple of cycles, we would have expected it to be due to some kind of you know the cell phone effect, as it's often called. In this case, I would say we don't know. My hypotheses would include Trump supporters being less likely to want to tell someone on the phone who they're supporting. I heard about this. They called it the reverse Bradley effect. Correct. Exactly. Mm. So that's a, that's a possibility. Another would be late deciders breaking at, at a pretty significant rate for Trump versus Hillary. So there may have been a number of people who were undecided. Maybe they all along were leaning toward Trump, but were nervous by things that he said, and they didn't make up their mind until the last week or two, hmm. in which I think we saw a more disciplined candidate who was kept away from Twitter for the most part. <laughs> and and it could also be that in the way that, that we modeled the data, we made assumptions about things like turnout that were just wrong. I mean, obviously, Democratic turnout was lower than expected. Yeah, there was definitely a, a fair amount of voter suppression. There was, you know, and even you felt a sense of anger in the Democratic Party. Emotions and values, they like drive elections. You know, I remember doing some research early on in Pennsylvania. They had all these like registered Democrats that switched to Republican. And I yeah. read about that thinking to myself, they might have switched parties, but are they, are they going to actually turn out and vote for Trump? You know, it's my understanding, like Hillary didn't even go to Wisconsin. That's right. Yeah. I, I think Democrats, in, in retrospect, when the history is written on this, I think it'll be and history is written sort of victors, right? Yeah, right. That's right. <laughs> That's true. Um, I think the campaign's decision to take Michigan and Wisconsin for granted was really 
misguided. Yeah. I don't know if they could have changed the outcome. Yeah. But uh, we live in a really divided country, and it's pretty numerically, mm. it's close to 50-50. Yeah. She won the popular vote, and I think Democrats, as they look at the next cycle or two, are likely to perform really well in diverse urban areas with large, these large population centers that are more economically vibrant. Mm. They're more diverse. There's more upward mobility. And yet there are a lot of people who don't live in those places. And they're older and they're whiter and they vote at higher rates. And so while if you just look at the millennial vote, you get a sense of where things may be going in 20 years. I think we've got a couple more cycles where this deep cultural divide is going to be a major feature of the political landscape. And as, you know, frankly, I'll say as someone who grew up, I grew up outside of a little town called Watsonville, which is one of the, uh, we're kind of the strawberry capital of California, if not the country, you know, coming from a sort of working class agrarian context, I, even though I've had an elite education and I've lived in great cities like San Francisco and Washington, D.C., I can empathize with that feeling of being forgotten, being left behind. I, I feel personally like I, I understand a little bit about where that comes from. And part of me is glad that this got forced to the forefront. Mm. I don't like the messenger personally, and I'm very worried about what this election means in terms of civic discourse, truth in the media, which I hope we'll talk about. I'm super worried. I think we've set ourselves back in terms of the way that we talk about race and gender. And I, I'm, I have a number of concerns. And yet there's, a, there, there, there's a, a set of the electorate, a part of this country that has been hurting and not listened to and feeling left out that you kind of ignore. In a democracy, you ignore at your own peril. And we're lucky to have a democracy in which hopefully the worst thing that happens is your side loses an election and you're forced to course correct and think a little bit more and come back to the middle and think a little bit more about a big set of people who are left behind. In past times and past places, this is the kind of resentment that bubbles up into a real bloody revolution. Yeah. I mean, I think that's key. I mean, I think we forget that behind all those like numbers and spreadsheets are people. Mm -hmm. you know, I was reading the, uh, this article about things like these Twitter bots and pe fake news and all this kind of stuff. And it's funny because it's it was almost kind of like the media was like, oh, actually, we can kind of blame the tech companies, you know, for uh, creating the fake news and almost kind of giving themselves an out. But they were equally as a part of this process as well, too. And I think there was a lot of people upset about the way the media portrayed the election as well. And I mean, granted, tech companies are kind of like media companies today, too. I mean, we're 44%, according to Bloomberg, 44% of adults get their media from their Facebook feed. That's right. Did you guys see anything in the data around causes or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, there's so many pieces to what you're talking about. I think one is just let's take the mainstream media for a moment first. And I think that there's an unhealthy reliance on sensationalism and spectacle. And it's it's this sort of you know inability to avert our eyes from the train wreck. And I think that when you have CNN broadcasting 
many, many minutes, 20, 30 minutes of a Trump rally without analysis because it's engaging. Uh, you face a real tension between the business goals of media outlets and their res- the responsibility that we all believe they have to offer analysis and maybe more importantly to elucidate and clarify and to help us get to get down to facts and give us the tools we need to do our own analysis. And I think we've seen mainstream media pulled between those two, that, that tension between the business goal of getting the highest ratings and having the most attention and the, the mission or the responsibility to inform the citizenry. That's one theme. Um, and then there's another, another piece of this, which is moving beyond mainstream media, although mainstream media often picked up on these things, and certainly social media became a distribution channel. Big time. Which is the decentralization of information creation and dissemination. We, we now have an incredibly fragmented media environment in which we all have this immense power, this awesome power now to produce information and distribute it to large numbers of people with no checks in place. Something that concerned me on Brigade was the extent to which the conversation devolved into a lot of misinformation being shared and a lot of speculation. We moved from, in the primary season, we had pretty substantive debate over whether or not post-secondary education should be tuition-free, and was that a good idea? Should police officers be required to wear body cameras? Should people be required to get a background check to buy a gun? We had actual substantive issue debates because within the liberal and conservative sides of our political spectrum during the primary season, we had some debate, at least on brigade. And I think that was it's easier to debate with a group of people who you have some common ground with. Unfortunately, when we moved into the general, that common ground is lost. And instead of debating policy, instead of actually trying to debate something like background checks on the merits or debate what we should do about our national debt, it became a competition of who could shout louder and which candidate should go to jail, quite literally. And I was pretty horrified by that, frankly. I kind of sat there watching the content creation and the debate on Brigade devolved pretty significantly. Why do you think that happened? What was it about, what was the tipping point there? Well, there's a tendency, and there's some social science research on this that I'm not super well-versed in, but I know that there's a tendency of groups of people to self-polarize when they're talking to people like them. And I think that that's been happening through this fragmented media environment for years. Do you think it has anything to do with our ability to basically tailor our content to whatever it is that we actually like to see and, and we're void of any kind of outside influence? I think that's part of what's going on. Part of it is that we are in these echo chambers in which we have a pre-existing opinion that gets reinforced and then we're selectively grabbing information, whether true or false, to reinforce our pre-existing views and we're told that we're right and there's this reinforcing mechanism that goes on. And when you're in an echo chamber, there's a tendency toward polarization of a pre-existing viewpoint where you go from um, a, a moderate but left of center or moderate but right of center view to a much more extreme view 
mm. which is a phenomenon that Cass Sustain and other researchers over the years have found is very common in human groups. They tend toward polarization. I think part of what was also happening on Brigade was that there was not a common cultural or factual basis for the conversation. And it became a lot of pumping information meant to persuade into the conversation simply to rile up one side and demoralize the other side. The, the sort of good faith effort to discuss and debate things and get to a shared truth went out the window and it became, the content itself almost became simply a tool or a means to an end. Hmm. You know, in, in episode one of Tech on Politics, I had an interview with Eric Reese. He said something to me that was um, interesting in that interview. He said, you know, we cannot expect to be influencing people one week every four years. We need to be influencing people every day, 365 days a year, especially on long-term, very complicated issues like climate change and automation and AI and blockchain, these things that are going to impact our world big time. What is it that Brigade is going to do next? Like, how are you guys going to influence this game and help us achieve a mission where we're having these conversations on a regular basis just so we can get better informed and learn and and make better decisions? Yeah, it's such an important question. We have an opportunity because people are paying more attention, either because they're excited and they have a renewed sense of hope or because they're terrified and they're very fearful. But... Either way, one thing that the outcome of this election has given us is a window of time in which to engage people and to get them to think about the legislative process and the functioning of government before the next election. So we're going to be having a midterm election in two years. We'll be deciding the fate of all of the House and a third of the Senate and a bunch of lower level down ballot offices. And our hope is that we can build tools on Brigade to help people understand what decisions their representatives are making, what issues are at play in the legislative process, a little bit about what those trade-offs are, and to draw them into that process, to give them a voice, to help them get involved in discussing and debating those issues, doing advocacy when there's something they really care about, but having a little more of the finger on the pulse. I think at one time in our past, people would read the newspaper. They'd read the New York Times or the the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, sure. Sure. Me too. I love newspapers. (laughs) Especially on Sundays, you know, brunch. Sure. I'm with you. (laughs) But but I mean, going back a hundred years ago, of the electorate and the opinion leaders, everybody got their news from a limited set of sources and they followed politics every day because they read the newspaper every day. And then a little bit later, 50 years ago, most voters were at least following the news on one of the major networks. And now with this fragmentation of media and how distracted we are and how much is going on, we're going to have to find a new way to help citizens stay on top of what's happening in the political. We we can't simply outsource political decisions to our representatives and then come back and, as Eric, it sounds like, was saying, in the last week or two of an election, try to convince them that the person did a good or bad job. 
we've got it now. I don't think it's feasible to say a majority of voters are going to read the New York Times every morning to know what's going on in the world. That's not going to happen. But there's some other form but of engagement. But there's other, right. And it's, it's socially mediated. It's on mobile. It's meeting people where they are. It's finding those ways to help them track a few major issues they care about and have a sense of what's the policy debate. What's going on in terms of implementation? If people thought that investing in infrastructure was an important issue and a good thing to do, they should be aware of what's going on with infrastructure over the next two years, not suddenly hear a soundbite a week before the 2018 midterms to make up their mind. So one of the questions that many of our listeners probably have, users of Brigade, how do you frame your questions on Brigade? Agree, disagree? How do you think about your own use of technology and trying to understand how you frame these different things? It's a great question. We ask people to take these simple binary positions on issues. An example might be everyone should be taxed at the same rate, agree or disagree. We have two sets of positions. We have platform positions that we've created, and then we have user-generated positions, and we think about them pretty differently. The platform positions are meant to be a starter set that helps people get comfortable with the idea of expressing their political beliefs, and we use the platform positions to show people what we call alignment scores. We help them understand their political world and understand themselves, really, in comparing and contrasting with other voters and saying, okay, I'm 80% aligned with other voters in my district on this issue, but I'm only 30% aligned with them on this issue. And the, the beauty of those alignment scores is that what people find is that there is no one else out there who they are 0% aligned with. Every, every two people, you know, any, any pair in this country of two randomly selected citizens will have something in common. And that's a beautiful thing. That is beautiful. We do, we do have things that, that hold us in common. With those, we've tried to word them as simply and as neutrally as we can. We worked with a polling firm on the left and a polling firm on the right based out of Washington to craft those. There are a little over 100 of those platform positions across 20-some issue areas. And do you get this polling firm, these firms, to agree that that's an okay that's right. question. We get, mm. we get the pollsters at each firm to agree that it's clear enough and neutrally worded enough. Maybe you guys are the new polling platform. Maybe. I've always thought of us more as an organizing platform, but I do think that we are uncovering data that polls will miss, and I think specifically behavioral data. It's one thing for people to tell a pollster or even to tell us in, a, in a, one of these position quizzes that we have that you believe this or you believe that or you like this candidate or you like that candidate. Being able to track behavior, who do you invite your friends to pledge to vote for? Who do you pledge your own vote for? Where on your ballot, which offices on your ballot do you fill out and leave blank? There's a lot of, a lot of indications in behavior that I think are richer and stronger signals than what you simply get from an opinion poll. So I do think that's interesting. Back to this idea of taking positions and getting alignment, we have that set of neutrally worded, very simple, very kind of visceral positions that are just meant to give you a quick gut reaction of I agree or I disagree with this thing. Those have been pretty successful. People take a lot of them. We're able to use that alignment data to help people make sense of the political system and, and more importantly, the, the uh, electorate, the people they live near and how they compare with other people. The more challenging side of opinion expression on Brigade has been user-generated positions. And for those, we allow users to create their own statements of belief. We automatically attach the agree-disagree button. 
once you agree or disagree, you then have the ability to leave a reason for your side. So we've created structured debate to try to make it less of a total free-for-all. We've tried to create enough structure to reduce the extent to which it devolves into personal attacks, although we still see that happen. I bet. But we really try to focus people on defending their side with a reason, with a rational argument, and we allow other people to upvote those reasons. And you do start to see with the higher volume positions where you have hundreds or even thousands of responses, you'll start to see some pretty high quality reasons getting upvoted to the top of either side, which is really fascinating because it's one of the only places, maybe the only place that I've personally found online where I can reliably see well-articulated arguments for the opposite viewpoint on an issue that I maybe feel strongly about. And so that's that to me has been really, really interesting. That being said, it's still it can still be pretty contentious. Yeah. Going back to, you know, how we sort of kicked off our conversation today. Is there a way to surface that with um, when you start thinking about some of these issues we talked about on the sort of fake news content or fact checking? Yeah. Yeah. Can we surface this in the feed? Well, to this question of the community policing this, one of the phenomena that we've seen is users being pretty aggressive in calling out positions that link off to content that's from one of these far right or or far left propaganda. People call it out. Yeah, calling it out, saying wow. that's not true. Here's the link to to Snopes, or mm. that's demonstrably false. Here's three articles that explain why that's false, and this is misinformation. And so we're seeing a pretty good degree of mm. self-policing. I think we need to build more moderation tools in and give people better tooling to do that. But we're seeing a very natural response from people on both sides of the aisle calling things out as false information. Mm. And that's interesting. I think there's an yeah. impulse to do that. So maybe there's a little bit of a Wikipedia-esque ethos that we can create, and we'll need to support that with the right functionality for those users. But if people want to spend time, and I think there are some people who do, calling out false information and pointing to sources that demonstrate why it's false, that's a public service. Yeah. And I want to embrace that. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Matt Mahan, founder and CEO of Brigade Media. Matt, thank you so much for your time and friend, former frenemy, but Definitely. Now just friends. Now just friends. <laughs> I'm glad uh, to be at this phase in our relationship so where we're just friends. Well, you know, it's, it's evolved. Good. Thanks, Tom. Great to be here. Tech on Politics is produced by Animal Media, with Bettina Warburg as executive producer and content production from Gina Delvac. You can follow this show on Twitter at Tech on Politics. I'm your host, Tom Saris.